I want you all to know I am adept at being in control. I, I am, I, I, I have a, a very good ability to be very much in control of things. So I, I, I want to make sure you understand this about me. Uh, so you might ask, what do I mean by this? Well, uh, I excel at exerting my will on situations and in so doing, bringing about my own desired outcomes. A less eloquent way of saying this is I know how to get what I want, right? Like, I, I just know how to do this. Uh, and before you're like, oh yeah, that's like a really good thing. It's not, trust me. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about this. So I learned this at a very early age. Um, one of my dad's favorite sayings, so when, when he would tell me to do something or uh, you know, give me a task or, or find something that I wanted to do, and he would say, okay, go ahead and do it. Like, he, he, I would say to him, but I can't. And, and my dad would respond to me in his Virginia Southern accent that still hung over 20 years after he had moved to the Midwest. There's no such thing as can't. There's no such, Alex, there's no such thing as can't. You need to know, as many times as you would say, uh, I can't do that, there's no such thing as can't. You can do anything you put your mind to, right? That's what he was trying to tell me. And over, turn, over time, I kind of learned that often when I, I ran into something that I feel like, felt like I couldn't do, that it was more often a question of my own desire rather than a question of ability, right? So this, this taught me something. This trained me in a certain way. So, uh, so as a result, I learned how to problem solve according to what I wanted. So, uh, so when I was a teenager, uh, all my friends were playing a computer game called World of Warcraft, and I really wanted to play this computer game called World of Warcraft, and so uh, I did not have a computer that could sustain playing the game and so I, like, I decided, okay, I'm going to get a computer. And, and I don't really have much money, so I need to get a job. So I got a job, uh, and then I didn't have enough money with the job to buy like a, a computer strong enough. So what I did is I learned how to build a computer. That way, I could play this game. Like I taught myself these sorts of things. And uh, so uh, another reality, um, I wanted instant entertainment when I was growing up as a teenager. I wanted access to instant entertainment, whatever kind of entertainment I could find. And so you know what I did? I learned how to become an internet pirate. And you're like, oh, that's like, no, I, I learned how piracy worked on the internet. I knew how to learn, uh, learn how to get music for myself. I learned how to get the movies that I wanted to watch. I didn't have to pay a dime for it. I always had instant access to it, right? Uh, so then, you know, so those are maybe questionable, but then, like, I wanted to learn how to play music, right? I wanted to learn how to, uh, you know, play guitar and uh, play piano and these kinds of things. And so often, like, I figured out how to teach myself, right? Because that was something I wanted. I figured out how to do this. And uh, so one time, like, I wanted a new guitar. I didn't have the money to get a new guitar. So you know what I did? Like, I bartered and bought and sold, like, various things to get the money that I needed to get the guitar, so, so as you're listening to me, like you hear me talking about this, I knew how to control my world to get what I wanted, right? And you're probably listening to me going, okay, so you're getting ready to now rail on control issues. And I, and I would tell you that's not true. I'm not actually preparing to rail on control issues. In fact, the ability to control something, the ability to control something is not in and of itself a bad thing. 
Because God gave us a command all the way back in the book of Genesis. He said, rule the earth and have dominion, right? Exercise your control over this earth that I'm giving you, right? He says that. Uh, so, so I'm not going to rail on control issues. Uh, it's an expression of the image of God, but rather I want to talk about a principle. And that principle is this. The what and the how of your control reveal your heart. So what you attempt to control and how you attempt to control it actually show what you worship, what's going on inside of your heart. So let's go back to me. Like I knew how to control situations to bring about my own desired outcomes, which is great if my desires are always right and good and holy. But unfortunately, more often than not, my desires were sinfully self-oriented more than they were oriented towards what was good and right and holy. So now you need to know, like what I articulated for you, I know how to get what I want. That is a point of pride for many in our culture. Like I know how to adapt to my surroundings. I know how to bring about my desired outcomes. Like what is the free market if it is not the ability to shape your world and bring about your desired outcomes. So I want to move forward then with a question this morning, and that question is this. How is the way you exercise control actually detrimental to your soul? How is the way you exercise control actually detrimental to your soul? So last week we started a series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're examining kind of this most momentous occasion, or one of the most momentous occasions in human history where the God of the universe condescends and actually like explains himself to his people. He explains his desires to his people. We call this the Judeo-Christian ethic. The Ten Commandments are the foundation of Western civilization, of philosophy, of government, of morality. Like We get to where we are today because God spoke these Ten Commandments thousands of years ago, right? So, so last week we talked about how the Ten Commandments, they functioned differently for Old Testament Israel under the Old Covenant than they function now for us under the New Covenant. So for Israel, these were the, the, the commandments were their national and religious law that set them apart as God's people. This is how we identify who we are as God's people. This is how we're going to be a special nation, but that's like actually not the function for us, because what the New Testament tells us is, are things like, you are not under the law, and it says you are not under the law. It's referring to the Mosaic Covenant. You are not any longer under the Mosaic Covenant because we have a new law that is written on our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That new law is this. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40, Jesus speaks it. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So really what we're talking about is not a new law at all, but the heart of the law, God's heart for the law, written on our human hearts by the Holy Spirit. So instead of the, the Mosaic law or even the Ten Commandments being ordinances that condition our status with God, the Ten Commandments actually reveal to us the principles that underlie what it really means for us to love God and love our neighbor. They show us the basic principles of what it means to live in this world and live as God has desired us to live. 
These are not a means of maintaining our status with God because we've already been given, forgiven and accepted by Jesus' blood through what Jesus has accomplished. But these are the principles that underlie what it means for us to love God and love neighbor. So let's talk about the purpose of the Ten Commandments then for Christians. We talked about these last week. I just want to review them then. The purpose of the Ten Commandments for Christians is that, that they reveal to us God and his values. They show us who God is and what he cares about, what he desires. The second thing that they do for us is that they reveal sin. They actually show us how far we fall short of what God expects. And then uh, the third thing that they do for us is that they point us to the only remedy for sin, the blood of Jesus. They showed us that we actually have no hope to make ourselves right with God. There's no good work that we can accomplish. We all fall desperately short. And that's why Jesus shed his blood, that we could be fully forgiven, that he could say at the cross, it is finished. So then why are we studying the Ten Commandments? Why do this? I, and I had four of these last week. We're going to go through them again just because I want us to have resident in us. Why are we doing what we are doing? So the first thing that we're going to do with the Ten Commandments is we're going to seek to have the Holy Spirit undo misconceptions inside of us about God and what he values. And these are cultural misconceptions. Our culture is actively working. The prince of the power of the air is actively working to train us in ways to make us think different than how God would desire us to think. The second thing I, I, I hope that would happen that the Holy Spirit would do is that he would well up gratitude inside of us. And you know, as I was listing these, I was like, you know, it would be really helpful if these were connected to our vision as a church, if these were connected to our strategy statement, so that they would well up gratitude and what? Worship, because we de we're developing Jesus followers who worship, love, and connect, right? So well up gratitude and worship inside of us for what Jesus has actually accomplished, the amazing mountain of sin that he has been able to overcome. The third thing, the third reason we're studying these is that we would gain motivation and training to connect with our neighbors, to connect God's values to our neighbors, but then to connect with them the amazing good news that Jesus saves when we fall short. And the fourth the fourth piece of our studying of the Ten Commandments is that I, I hope that the Spirit would actually increase our cooperation with him in the midst of this, that we would actually seek to work together with the kind of people that he's trying to make us into. So last week uh, is the first, the first commandment. It told us, uh, there are no other gods. You shall worship. No, you shall have no other gods in my presence before me. And this week we're talking about a commandment about what we commonly refer to as idols, uh, but what shows up in our passage as uh, the word images. And each week, as we go through these commandments, we're filtering these commandments through two questions. First question is, what did this mean for the Old Testament Israelite? We have to see the command in its context to know what God was actually saying but then from there, we can say, what does this mean for Christians who have been saved by Jesus under the new covenant? What does this mean for New Testament Christians? So we're going to filter through those two questions this morning. And before we do that, I want to give you a quote. Pastor Don came up to me last week and gave me this quote. He was listening and he's like, here, here is this. Uh, it was so helpful. He had, he had kind of processed things. So, so listen to these words from Pastor Don because I greatly appreciated them. He says, in biblical morality, God exposes the truth of who he is. And in our modern attempts at morality, 
we impose on God who we wish that he was. We're going to move forward with that kind of undergirding our conversation this morning. So then our first question, what did this mean for the Old Testament Israelite? Verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Um, So like I said, some uh, translations, a lot of translations say the word image. Other translations say idol. What are they talking about? What is idol worship? Because for us in 21st century America, what they are referring to feels very far removed for us because it's not something that we really see in our day-to-day lives. So let's talk about idolatry. Idolatry is this, the use of statues or images to represent gods and carry out their power. Idolatry in the Old Testament is the use of statues or images to represent gods and carry out their power. So, so idols actually were a very common way for you to be able to guarantee God's blessing upon you, upon your house, upon your nation. If you want to make sure that these things happen, then uh, if you want like a God to go to work for you, then there's actually like a kind of step-by-step process you can go through to make that happen. You start off and you craft an idol, right? Or, or you have somebody make one for you, or you approach one. Whatever it might be, you have this idol that exists, this image that exists, and it represents, it's in the form of the God that you are approaching. And what you know as you approach that idol is that the God or some part of the God that you're approaching actually takes up residence in the idol, like some, some piece of that God's power or who that God is, so that when you are looking at the idol, you are in fact, like you recognize, I'm looking at that God. So, so then what you do after that, now that you understand these things, you're approaching this idol, is you actually perform certain actions in the presence of the idol. So they, they actually called this feeding their gods. So the idea would be that uh, gods, they have everything that they need except food. So what you do is you bring your God food. You bring it grain, you bring it some kind of offering, or you, you, bring it, uh, you, you perform certain worshipful actions, and your worshipful actions become the food that that God consumes, right? So you sustain the God, and then in return, the God will actually bring about your desired outcome the thing that you ask it for. So it's kind of like a quid pro quo exchange. You give the God this and the God will return to you that. So you need to know that for ancient people and even for people in our world today, idolatry was incredibly attractive because it gave a guarantee that God, like the the spiritual power, the gods would go to work for you. On top of that, it enabled all sorts of selfishness. Like, with idolatry, you don't actually have to change anything about yourself. You just have to perform certain actions in the presence of your God to get what you want. It provided ease of access, right? Like, how how easy is it to, to kind of make sure that you're in touch with the divine if all you have to do is kind of just take care of certain actions or give a little bit of your offering here or there? 
It made sense. It actually, the, the ex- idolatry made sense of the world. And this is the, um, you know, images in heaven above or in the earth beneath or below the earth. All these words actually, they reference things that people saw as powerful. So like the sun. The sun is in the sky and brings light and gives life to the earth. And so if, if I'm like observing the world around me, I recognize, oh, I could, I could create a sun god or an image of a sun god, and that would actually give me access to the power of the sun in, in my life, in my spheres of influence, right? This is what people would tell themselves. Or I see a bull. A bull is an image of power and strength and, and conquering. If I want that in my life, oh, I see that. I'm going to make that bull into an image of the God who brings power into my life so that I can use that God's power. And so, so that was the attractiveness of idolatry, but then you add on to it the fact that many of these rituals were often incredibly self-indulgent. Like the rituals in and of themselves gave you what you already wanted in your heart. They were uh, extreme sensory experiences, often in, in fact intertwined with sexuality and these different things. And, and so this is what idolatry is. This is what idolatry promised to people. And then you have the Israelites. They're now at the foot of this mountain. They are meeting God for the first time. They are understanding what it is exactly that he wants. And they know that he is a powerful God. Right? They watched him conquer every single one of the Egyptian gods. You know what they're going to want to do? They're going to want to control his power. Because if you know that what you do to control God's power is you put them inside of an idol and then you perform actions for them, they're like, Oh, there's a wealth of power there that's available to us. Let's take advantage of that. They're actually going to be incredibly inclined to make an idol out of Yahweh, an idol that will represent to them Yahweh so that they can perform actions for this idol. And this was the real offer of idols. If you perform actions, you will get whatever you desire. The lie of idol worship is that you can control the power of God's to bring about your desired outcomes. So then, so then Yahweh kind of explains this command further to them because he really does need to emphasize it. They're gonna be so inclined to go after idol worship that he reiterates it. In verse five he says, you shall not bow down to them. So not only shall you not make them, you shall not bow down to them. You go to temples to bow down to idols. You shall not do that. You shall not even serve them. You serve them when they sit on your mantle in the house. He goes to additional lengths to clarify. Like he's getting detailed. He's getting explicit. You have nothing to do with these things. And this is important to note because their cultural and their cultural and religious surrounding, it would be very easy for them to find exceptions to this rule. Right, because Yahweh saved them and is making them a nation, which for many of them in their filter for the world would have told them, Yahweh is our national God. So as a nation, we are not to have any idols, but, well, I also have household gods and personal gods. Right, so, so Yahweh is my national God. We, we're not supposed to have any idols as a nation, but I can still have, you know, idols in my house that protect my house, that I perform actions for. Or I can still have even uh, personal gods that I bow down to and worship. And so 
All of these different spheres of life come into this, and you might think, you know, Yahweh is establishing a nation. Uh, he's just going to be our national God, but we might still have personal and household gods. And, and, and God is being explicitly clear with them. You don't get to decide what I will look like. You don't get to shape divinity according to your will. You don't get to command divine power. You don't get to control the spiritual realm and its power. So interestingly enough, God is extremely passionate about this. So much that he attaches to this specific command particular consequences that will go along with it. So in verse five, he says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Uh, Some people read God's jealousy here and they say, look, see, God is just like us. God sins. God has jealousy inside of him. Um, So jealousy is sin. I I want to tell you, first of all, that jealousy itself, the act of jealousy is not sin. Jealousy is sin when you want something that somebody else has. Jealousy is good when someone has taken something from you that belongs only to you. In this circumstance, somebody has taken something from God that belongs only to him. Like if God is not jealous in this circumstance, then I am inclined to view him as apathetic. As uh, I question his character. I question his justice. So how jealous is he? goes on in verse 5, says, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Like God, he is so passionate about this that he will not hesitate to continue following up generation after generation to make sure that they understand just how passionate he is about this. Now, this, this phrase the third and the fourth generation, it would have struck an Israelite curiously because the way that you just mark generations, in fact, if you were to go back to Genesis 15 when God told Abraham that the Israelites were going into slavery, they were going into slavery for four generations. So when an Israelite heard this, they actually would have thought, like they would have immediately thought of their captivity in Egypt for the third and the fourth generation. Yahweh is actually including what would be required for him to send them back into captivity. He's required, he's he's listing for them, this is what it's going to take for you to experience the same punishment again, because what what he includes here, and this actually, this verse, these verses, they are a mark of his grace towards the Israelites. Because for the third and the fourth generation, they did nothing to correct anything. And he, by his grace, chose to make them his special people. He loved them. He drew them out of Egypt. He worked for them. It's a sign of his grace. He says, but you don't want to experience the same thing that you just experienced, you need to make sure that generation after generation after generation does not give in to the same ways of false worship that the world around you is worshiping. Like, if you never want to see Egypt happen again, Israel, don't 
use idols. So FYI, God keeps his promise. Hundreds of years later, Israelites, generation after generation after generation are worshiping idols. And God finally gave them back into captivity, right? We watch this happen. So God keeps his word. This is, this is what he is setting up here. He is incredibly passionate about this. So I want to ask another question then, why? Why is God so passionate about it? Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God cares so much because he is the one who is the image maker. He is the one who shapes reality. He has spoken the words of existence into the world. He has formed us himself. God intends actually for us to reflect his character into the world. But then something happened. We disobeyed God. And we took that image that he made of us and we broke it. It became a broken image. And now... When human beings make images for divine power, we set our broken images up to push upon the world, to shape our reality however we prefer. So so when the Israelites are making images, they're essentially, or when anybody makes images, you're essentially telling God, you should be under our control. We should get to define your boundaries. We should get to determine how you go to work for us. You should be shaped in our image. So when we commit idolatry, we decide that we should be in control. That's functionally what is happening. When when the ancient people, when people today, when anybody commits idolatry, we're deciding that we should be in control, that we get to determine our own reality. We're taking power and control that rightfully belongs to God, and we claim it as our own. This is like your teenager telling you, that this is their house, that they will make the rules, that they will use your money however they want to use it, that they will use whatever authority you have given them to, to, to define how this household will work for themselves. It's functionally what we're doing. So, all of that being said, that's what's happening. That's why God is so jealous about this. So then my, our next question that we have to filter through is what does this mean for New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians. So there are two levels of idolatry that I want to talk about, and we have to kind of get detailed about this. So the first level of idolatry is concrete idolatry. This is the use of images in your spiritual practice as the embodiment of divine power. So, um, so why do you do this? Why, do, why does anybody do this? Well, you are defining God's boundaries so that, so that ultimately you can determine what God will do for you, right? That is concrete idolatry. That is explicit idolatry. But then there's another kind of idolatry that is less physical, less tangible. There is a, an idolatry of the heart. So, so idolatry of the heart is basically when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Uh, And so for what it's worth, what you try to control and how you try to control it actually reveal what is ultimate for you. So uh, so first example, (laughs) have you, uh, like 
just evaluate yourself for a second. If you have ever seen yourself scrambling, like in the middle of frenzy because something is happening in your life, and then in your scrambling, that would lead you to maybe hurt people or make demands of other people or maybe cross boundaries that you wouldn't typically cross. I want to tell you, like I kind of want to stop you in the middle of your frenzy and say, okay, just a moment. First of all, have some grace for yourself. Like let's recognize what's happening. Have some grace, but then ask yourself a really important question. What idol am I trying to keep in place with my scrambling? What am I, what God am I functionally worshiping? Am I keeping on its throne by working to scramble to keep it in place? So that's my first example. My second example uh, will go the other way. So away from scrambling and towards apathy. So, so if you find yourself in a place of apathy and not doing what you know you should do, maybe you're avoiding hard things, maybe you're neglecting a certain responsibility God has given you, like I want to break you out of your copacetic state, right? And I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself a question. What idol am I keeping intact by avoiding doing what I know I need to do? Like, so, so idolatry is simply, it's a gift from God in your life that, that you will make all other things in your life bend the knee to that thing, right? You will set aside everything else. You will disobey certain things. You will not do certain things. And you will go and do certain things all for the purpose of keeping that thing intact, not allowing that thing to move. So, so both forms of idolatry, whether it's concrete idolatry or idolatry of the heart, both forms are our way of shaping the world or shaping our world, shaping our experience in our image. And both ultimately rob God of the glory that belongs only to him. So this has been, for what it's worth, this has been the pattern of human existence since the beginning. Um, Paul writes about this pattern of human existence in Romans chapter one. He says things like, uh, he ex- we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He says that they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So, so that's his summation of, of where we are with idolatry, but he doesn't actually start the argument there. There's a progression towards idolatry. So Romans chapter one actually lays out for us the spiral of idolatry. It starts with suppression. Step one in the spiral of idolatry is suppression. So uh, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is people who things are obvious to you and, and when you see the argument moving in the obvious direction, you know what you do? You create emotional arguments, you start calling names, you start yelling at God and you say, how could you, right? Because you're doing everything you can to keep the truth that you know is already actual and real away. You don't want to acknowledge it. So it starts with suppression and then it moves on to dishonor and ingratitude. Romans one twenty one. they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Uh, by the way, this reflects very similarly the first commandment, right? This is the breaking of the first commandment. They did not give God his rightful place. And then it moves on to the third step, which is exchange. And that's where we see in, in one twenty three and verse 25, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling uh, things in the sky above and things in the earth and things under the earth. And verse 25, it says ultimately this is what happened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So when we get to the exchange step, this is now the breaking of the second commandment, right? This is the progression. And then there's a fourth step to the spiral of idolatry. That fourth step, it reminds us that God is passionate, that God has made us for himself. And when we put things in his place, we expect them to give us the desires of our heart. But here's the problem. When things that are not God, when we make things that are not God to actually be God, what happens is that those things ultimately wreak havoc in our lives, whether they're in our lives here uh, as we live in this world or whether it's in our lives eternally. Idols wreak havoc in our lives. So Romans one twenty four. Therefore God gave them up. Like, they kept choosing and kept choosing to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images, and so God gave them up to what they were already pursuing, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. So this is what happens when human beings, broken images of God, actually try to shape the world in our image. This is what God is telling us not to. To do. So if he's telling us not to do something, you're probably asking, what is the alternative? Well, uh, first of all, the injustice of our false worship must be resolved. God must do something to resolve the injustice of our false worship, which is why Jesus gave up his body to be broken to let his blood be shed for our sakes, to pay for our treason against God. Like God could not just let this go. So Jesus gave himself up so that people could be forgiven to actually extend the offer of being reconciled to a God that we had committed treason against. So so the injustice of our false worship had to be resolved. But then second, Jesus shows us the image that we are to become. So Jesus was the unbroken image of God, right? He perfectly showed us what God intended for every human being. He was the perfect human. He showed it perfectly. And when he died, he called us to die with him, to crucify our old, broken selves, to die to our rights, to determine our own reality, to shape the world in our image, and to surrender our our idolatry and let the Holy Spirit take up residence inside of us so that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and nothing else will determine what our life will become. So when the Bible actually speaks of this process, this is what it says in in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's the alternative. To say it a different way, and this is our main point this morning, don't control with images. Surrender to become an image. Don't control with images. Don't try to exert your will on your reality to make it fit according to your desires. Die to your desires. Surrender that you may become like Christ.
that you may actually become the image that God intended you to be. Okay, so what? So what? Uh, I want to give us another practical tool. Last week we did kind of the, the spectrum of false worship, of uh, false gods. This week I want to give us another tool. I want to give us an idolatry spectrum to help us evaluate ourselves. So for what it's worth, John Calvin, 16th century theologian, he has this uh, quote that, that makes it around often in conversations about idolatry. He says, the human heart is a factory of idols. Like our, because we are broken images, it keeps producing idols and producing idols and producing, like this is how our heart is wired. So if our hearts are prone to trying to seize control of our world through idolatry, then we need to be aware of that. So let's look at this uh, idolatry spectrum together. Number 10 on the idolatry spectrum would be a full, this is full-blown idolatry. I worship physical things as God on purpose, full-blown idolatry. So this may, I may talk about this and you might be like, well, that's culturally foreign to us, Um, but for what it's worth, it's actually fairly common in our surrounding area. And, And and on top of that, there's an increasing interest in it all the time. So, uh, so Hinduism, uh, which you know, we are in the middle of a place that has a lot of Hindu worship right now. Hinduism says each person, uh, you, have, you have kind of this slew, this table of three million idols that you can choose from. Right, and each, each person, as they encounter this table of three million idols, that kind of the, the, the array of gods that are in front of you are subject, and this is how Hindus think of their religion, they're subject to your own interpretation as the person coming in to their presence. So the principle of worship actually filters down to the person in the street as he focuses his attention on one or more of the three million Hindu gods. What you are essentially saying is pick whatever God best represents your desires and what you are attempting to get out of the world. So it's it's essentially a question like which image best represents divinity to you? Worship those images. So, so that's, that's kind of the extreme end of idolatry, less extreme. I worship icons or images because they are filled by God, right? So, so this is saying that God has specially blessed or taken up residence in a particular picture or a particular image, and because of that, our worship is extra special. God specially blesses us or extends his blessing to us because his presence is in that physical object, um, maybe six, this is less extreme. I give talismans and statues spiritual power. So one example of this would be dream catchers, uh, which you can appreciate as art. It's like, I, I don't want to tell you, like, it's wrong for you to ever have a dream catcher in your home. My question is, how does that dream catcher function for you? Do you think it actually catches dreams to, like, prevent evil spirits from entering your mind in the middle of the night? That's idolatry. You're taking spiritual power and you're assigning it to a physical thing. Uh, some people sell, when, when you sell your house, there's this practice of uh, taking uh, the image, the statue of St. Joseph, and you bury it upside down, facing your house, and if you do that, you are gonna do well in attempting to sell your house, right? You're assigning spiritual power. You're assigning God's influence on your world. You're determining how God will go to work for you 
when you do that thing. If you're traveling, right? What you do, like you might wear uh, the image of St. Christopher on your neck to specially protect you as you travel. Now, it is not wrong to have an image of St. Joseph or St. Christopher to help remind you of the amazing things that God was able to do through their legacy, right? Like that's not wrong. What, what is wrong is when you assign special spiritual power to those things that God will actually accomplish something for you because they exist in your presence, so, uh, so that, that's that one. Let's also just real quick, let's talk about the image of the cross because some people will hear me talk about images and say, well, why do you have an image of a cross on your stage if it's wrong to have images? Well, how does the cross function for us? Like, I, my words are no more specially blessed because this cross is up here than they would be if it were gone off of the stage. Like, you, God is not, like, specially opening up hearts and specially empowering me to speak because of the presence on, of this thing on the stage. This cross is a constant reminder to us of what has been accomplished for us to be able to even worship in this place. This cross functions as a reminder of what Jesus has done, right? But, but we don't assign special spiritual power to this image, right? So it, it's worth just clarifying these sorts of things. The next one on the list, number four, uh, I willingly treat my desires or my pleasures as my God despite knowing what the Bible says. So now we've moved from the, the realm of the explicit and the concrete to the realm of internal. Colossians 3, 5, Paul actually talks about the realm of the internal. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. All of these are what he calls idolatry, directly referencing the second commandment. Number two. So maybe it's not as explicit as, you know, willingly just giving yourself over to your desires, but maybe you knowingly give first place in your heart to something other than God. And you do it on purpose, right? That's something to be aware of. That's another factor of idolatry. Or maybe you unknowingly give first love. This one, this is the hardest one to know, right? Because we don't make the decision necessarily to do this, but because our hearts are so broken by sin, something happens where occasionally things will take first place in our heart and we don't see it. And that's why we need brothers and sisters around us to help us see, hey, maybe you're prioritizing something here. Maybe you're putting something first place here that shouldn't actually be in first place. And then uh, zero, zero idolatry or no idolatry would be to say, I use no images to worship God and seek to ensure that nothing replaces God as first in my heart. So this, this tool, uh, again, it's just an evaluation tool for yourself to keep coming back to and examining. So, so what, number two this morning? Surrender to become an image. So if you have never trusted Jesus. If you've never believed in Jesus, I want to encourage you this morning that whatever version of your life that you are trying to build, I want you to listen to Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If you are committed to pursuing your own version of your life, God will actually, like, He'll give you up to that. He'll let you reap what you're trying to sow. Or, today, 
you could actually decide to follow Jesus who gave himself up to extend to you the opportunity to be reconciled with your creator. Accept him as Lord and Savior of your life. And, and you could actually say, God, I'm giving up trying to shape my world. I want you to shape me. Right? And you know what happens with that? He gives you the promise of eternal life. And he gives you the promise that from that point forward, he will work to form you into the image of Jesus. So, so that's if you haven't trusted Jesus. If you have trusted Jesus, I just ask you, is there anything in your life that you have prevented Jesus from having control over? That you have said, okay, these things you can have and these things you can have, but this you can't have. I'd encourage you, whatever that thing is, it's preventing you from becoming the person that God made you to be. Like repent, turn away, and surrender to God because whatever you lose in your surrender is worth knowing Christ more right now, is with walking with him in a deeper way. Is you actually gain becoming more like Jesus now when you give up that thing that you've been keeping back for so long. So with that being said, church, I'd just like to say nothing dispels false worship like true worship. So with that being said, we are going to worship Jesus together. We're going to sing a song to him. We are going to direct our hearts to the only place that they truly belong, which is exalting him. So church, would you stand as I pray and we prepare to sing? Lord, this morning, I want to be the first to acknowledge that my own ways of controlling and exerting my will upon my reality, unfortunately, often are directed more at my own desires than they are towards exalting you and giving you what you want. Lord, I pray that you would give us all the spiritual eyes to remove the, the plank that is in our eye, to see the thing that we are trying to keep in your place in our hearts. Would you give us the spiritual perception to be aware of these things? And anytime we see them creeping into your place, would you give us the, the wherewithal to attack them, to remove them? Would you remind us of the necessity that we would surrender to you above all else. God, we thank you that you are so good that we could surrender to you. Like we can trust you, that your ways are above our ways, that your thoughts are above our thoughts, that you understand things we cannot possibly comprehend, and that you are so good that you sent your son, you're so loving that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, so you can be trusted. We can surrender to you. And you are more worthy of our surrender than any other thing in all of the universe. So would you convince our hearts of this? Would you shape our hearts? Would you make us more like Jesus? Lead us to surrender. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.